Father, we are here this morning to worship you and to be nourished by you. Would you strengthen us by your spirit as we hear your word? Would you speak very personally and directly to each one of us the things that we need to hear from you from your word? Thank you for redeeming us and setting us free in Christ. Would you fill us again and afresh this morning with his spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. So John 15, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to that, or um, we actually do have some in the back that you could grab, or if you're on your phone, just have it open because John is not um, as linear as some of the other things we've looked at, like the Apostle Paul, so it'll be a little more circling back to different verses as we walk through it this morning. Before we read John 15, though, I want to talk about some of the context for today and then for this series, because the context, especially for this text, is really important. As we look at that and we try to reconstruct a little bit about what might have been going on in the minds of the people who heard this, we can get a sense of this is what Jesus meant. And when we figure out what it meant for them, then we can apply it to our own life. So um, what was the setting? What was the occasion for these words? Well, this section in John, starting at chapter 13 all the way to chapter 17, is called the farewell discourse. And it's what it sounds like. Jesus' disciples had spent three years with him, literally following him around, learning from him, getting to know him, and really loving him. And that something was going to change in their relationship with him. They had come to know him as the long-promised Messiah who would save his people from their sins and deliver them from all of their enemies. He was the light shining in the darkness that we talked about throughout Advent, that darkness has not overcome it. But now Jesus needed to prepare these men who had been following him for a life when he was not going to be physically present right next to them a life where he was not going to be there in the same way. You could see this in John 13, right at the beginning of this farewell discourse. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus starts to alert them to this truth. And really, when you read the Gospels, you see that even from the very beginning, Jesus is preparing them for a season when he wouldn't be with them in the same way. He was going to go to the Father. But if if you imagine what it would have been like, this was not welcome news for these men who had given up everything to follow him. I mean, Jesus was the Messiah who was supposed to reign forever. How does the Messiah reign forever if he's not here? Kings need to sit on a throne and have people who can hear them and follow their orders. But Jesus was saying, I'm not going to be with you. I'm going to the Father. Listen to how Peter responds to this in John 13, 36. He says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. You can hear the confusion that he's experiencing. Where in the world are you going that I can't? I want to go with you. You can also hear that he really loves Jesus, willing to say even, I will lay down my life for you. Now, what comes next is a humbling for Peter when he actually denies Jesus three times. 
learns more about what it means to be his follower. But this, this picture, I think, of Peter especially helps us as we read this to see that these were real human beings who received these words. Human beings with wishes and desires and anxieties and fears. People with rough edges, you know, they're just like us. Normal people who receive these words. Package deals with their own strengths and weaknesses. So John 15 then is speaking to, to this sort of normal person, real people. They had spent three years with him, seeing and hearing him do things that they could not have imagined, and now he was going to leave them. He had their allegiance, their lives, and he's breaking this news to them. It's hard to imagine. And it makes, I think, these words today that we're going to read unbelievably important. It's hard to imagine anything being more important for them in that moment than to understand what it would look like to remain connected to Jesus if he wasn't going to be right next to them. Like he needed, Jesus went to great lengths and needed to communicate to them how would they remain with him when he was going to depart. And then for us today, what could be more important than to start a year thinking about how do we remain connected to him? I mean, he's not standing in this room right now either. So how do we connect with him in a unique and powerful way? Let's read then John 15 together with that in mind. John 15, 1 to 11. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. It's really rich, isn't it? There's a lot there. Well, with this allegory, this vine allegory, Jesus clarified and cemented for Peter and for those other men that were around him what his identity was and what their relationship would be with him going forward, and how God would continue to work among them. It vividly captures that each one of us was created for this ongoing union, this ongoing connection and abiding in Christ that we experience in our day-to-day life as we go about it. It's this constant nourishing and filling that produces much fruit in our lives. Now, to abide means to stay in, to remain in, or to make your home in, to be connected to. So while Jesus' departure out of the world was imminent, he would indeed continue to be with his disciples. And in many ways, 
he would be with them in an even more intimate way than he had before, even more connected than when he was physically standing right next to them. But like so many times before in the three years that they followed him, they would need to trust him for this. They would need to not just believe in him, they would need to believe him that what he was saying was true and that his grasp on reality was greater than theirs. That the relationship he was describing was really and truly possible even if it was beyond their comprehension at the time. And it's similar for us this morning too. He's inviting each one of us to believe him. It's a life that goes beyond believing in him. That's a subtle difference. Believing in Jesus is important and crucial. It's believing in him that we receive forgiveness of our sins, that we receive salvation and new life. But believing him goes beyond that to taking to the bank his words, to believing that they are solid and true and trustworthy, even when our experience sometimes seems very different than what he's describing. He's calling us to believe him, that we can be connected to him moment to moment as we do life that a life of flourishing, a life of joy and nourishing from him is really possible for us, normal people, everyday people. It's similar, this believing Jesus dynamic is similar if you were going to explore a wilderness area that you were unfamiliar with and you went out into it and you had a friend with you who grew up in those woods. Now, even though while you get deeper and deeper into the woods, being unfamiliar with it, you don't know where you are, you quickly become disoriented. Your friend who has spent his life in those woods knows all the trails. He knows where all the best views are, how to get there. And then I think even more importantly than that, when the time is ready for the adventure in the woods to be over, you can believe your friend that he knows how to get you back home. He knows and you can follow him right back to where you began, even when you don't know how to get there yourself. That's what it looks like for us to believe Jesus for things that really are a bit beyond our comprehension when we live our just normal everyday lives. So let's take a little closer look at this allegory and just see if we can find out more and more from Jesus, what would this look like for us? What would it look like to live that way day to day? He uses three different characters, three different roles in the allegory to paint this picture for us. First, it's himself, Jesus as the vine. And then the father is this vine dresser, or he's a farmer. That's what he is. And then it's us, Jesus' disciples, then and now, who are these branches. So first, Jesus, though. Let's start where he starts. I love that this is just very clear. We don't have to guess who is the vine, who did he have in mind. He says it. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. What I want us to catch, though, is embedded in that statement are two references, really important references to the Old Testament. The first one is in the phrase, I am. Now, if you read through the Gospel of John, you would see that there are a number of times where Jesus does this, seven times where he says, I am. For example, I am the bread of light. I am the light of the world. Or as we heard last week when Christoph taught, I am the good shepherd. Jesus very intentionally and deliberately uses that phrase, and it's, it would have for them most likely brought to mind, and for us hopefully as we read it in a minute, the name of God that was used in the Old Testament. You can see on the screen here, Exodus 3.14, Moses asked God 
When I tell the people about you, what is your name that I should tell them? And this is God's response. I am who I am. And then he says, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So by repeatedly and deliberately doing that with his followers, Jesus is again identifying, I am not just a normal human king. I'm not, I am fully human, yes, but I'm also fully divine. He was God incarnate that we remembered at Christmas and continue to today. So that's the first reference. The second one that's embedded in here is the statement, the true vine, the true vine. So throughout the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as the vineyard or the vine throughout it. And that vine was intended to be God's people who would bear good fruit for God in the world. It's people who would be a blessing to all the other nations. Unfortunately, as you read through the Old Testament, you find that they aren't able to accomplish that great end. They failed to accomplish their purpose to bear good fruit. So with this reference to Israel, Jesus is making it clear that he is a replacement of sorts, or he's, Jesus is a fulfillment of Israel for God's people. What God intended for Israel, Jesus will fulfill. And we get to be part of that. They failed to bring forth the fruit that God intended fully, but he will bring it forth. It is certain. So with both those statements, with I am and the vine, Jesus is, again, connecting his work with the work that God has been doing all along since the beginning of creation among his people. This plan to save and to redeem and to remake the world isn't something that just started in the Gospels. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. But then the vine also just means the vine in this allegory as well. Just like a vine, a grapevine. Jesus is the sole nourishment for his people, the branches. Everything that the branches need to be fruitful and to flourish is found in him and him alone. All of God's favor, grace, power, and strength flow through Jesus the vine to us for living the life that he gave us to live. And more on that connection in a few minutes here. But first, what is it that Jesus means when he talks about fruit or fruitfulness? Because he uses that phrase throughout. And I think unless we have something in our minds, we might miss what he's saying. Unfortunately, unlike when he says, I am the true vine, he doesn't give fruit a definition in the same way. But we can look at what he's saying and piece together some clues from this. So if you look at um, verse 7, you can see that fruit is whatever flows out of prayer that is in Jesus' name. So prayer in Jesus' name results in fruit flowing out of it. So that's one idea of what fruit is. That would include obedience to Jesus that you can see in verse 10, fruitfulness and fullness of joy that you see in verse 11, and then later in the chapter that you'll hear about next week, it's love for one another and our witness for Jesus in the world. So fruitful, fruitfulness is not just one thing. It's a bit broader than that. Another way of thinking of it is to say fruitfulness here is Christ-likeness in us that flows from him to us and then from us out into the world. Whatever would be Christ-like in us, that's the fruit he has in mind that we bring forth. So after identifying himself as this true vine who nourishes his people, he then identifies God the Father as the vine dresser or the farmer. And as the farmer in this allegory, God has two roles. He removes dead branches and he prunes 
fruitful branches. And if you look closely, there is no exception to this work. Notice that it involves every branch. It's every fruitless dead branch will be taken away and every fruitful branch will be pruned. No branch will be missed by this meticulous, loving farmer. And his work is focused on maximum fruitfulness. That is the point of his work in the vine, that the vine would bring forth more and more good fruit. And he's going to do what's necessary in each branch to make that happen. But what are we to make of these branches that are taken away? If you're like me, I was drawn to that phrase and really wondered, what, what is Jesus getting at there? And, you know, there's a number of different opinions on it. I think mine is this. This image highlights the impossibility of being a fruitless disciple of Jesus. If a person is in Jesus, in the vine, he or she will bear fruit. That is a certain certainty. All true believers will remain in Christ and bear fruit, just like a healthy branch would bear fruit on a vine. However, there are some who will appear to be in Christ, but who truly aren't in him. Jesus had earlier in the gospel warned his disciples of this. There would be people who would talk like they were in him who really weren't. And then remember what I said at the beginning of the sermon about the context of this statement. This is the farewell discourse. And really what sets this all off is one of his close followers who had followed him, Judas Iscariot, betraying him. One of his followers is the catalyst that sets everything in motion that goes towards the cross for Jesus. In John 13, Jesus in great humility served his disciples by washing their feet. And that washing the feet included Judas as well. After washing their feet, he says this in John 13, 10. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And then when you read on, Jesus becomes troubled in his spirit. And then he explains to his disciples and breaks the news to them that one of you is going to betray me. And they all want to know who. And eventually he hands some bread to Judas And and Judas leaves. And and in the moment when Judas leaves to betray Jesus, the other disciples do not understand that that's what's happening. They they don't get it at all. Because it's hard to imagine what that would have been like to follow him the way they did with such radical allegiance. And you're linked arms with these other men and you're doing this for years together only to find out that one of you looked like the rest but internally was very different. Judas would have appeared, it's very clear, they didn't realize it, he would have appeared just like Peter, just like the other disciples, but there was something going on in his heart that was very different, where he was willing to essentially sell his his master for money and betray Jesus. That's what I think is primarily happening when Jesus talks about branches being taken away. It's Judas and then others who the disciples would encounter as they ministered and did Jesus' ministry, who would betray Jesus, Jesus is preparing them for that. He's warning them that that will happen, sadly. There will be some that appear to be in the vine who are not. This is important because I do not think that that statement is meant to be some sort of threat to people who are in Jesus, to those of us who are following him. It's not meant to be, bear fruit or else. That is not what he is saying. He's saying, 
if you are in Christ, you are going to be bearing fruit, like a, vi- like a branch does in the vine. So this isn't meant to evoke fear in a true follower of Jesus, and it's not meant for us to then wonder and judge people around us if they are in or not. It was, again, preparing them that this could be a reality, and there might be people in your life um, who come to mind, sadly. But what we can trust, though, is that because this is God the Father who is the farmer, His work is done in love and deep care in a way that we could never do it. Then there are the branches that the farmer prunes, the branches that bear fruit. These branches are going to be cut as well, but the cutting on these branches is meant to result in more good and more fruitfulness. These branches that are pruned are not pruned because they've done something wrong. Actually, they're pruned because they're doing something right. They're pruned because they're bringing forth fruit as intended. And in order to bring forth more, they will need to be pruned. Again, the Father, our loving Father, is the one that does this, and that's very important. I think this is a promise that we can really take to heart, that even when we feel stuck, even when we feel maybe a bit stagnant in our walk with Jesus, the Father is still working. He is not stopping. He's a farmer that does not give up, and he will ensure that every branch brings forth maximum fruitfulness in just the right way for the branch. The trouble with pruning, though, is that it's uncomfortable. I mean, there's cutting going on. It's painful, and we don't really like discomfort, do we? I don't know about you, but I much prefer being comfortable and at ease. But there is something about the way God made us as human beings that the process of growth seems to require pain and discomfort in some way. A friend of mine in Ottawa, he's a seminary professor there named Mark. And when I first met Mark and found out he was a seminary professor, I was really excited because I thought, man, here's a guy who can just pick his brain. He's got all this knowledge. So the first thing I asked him was, Mark, what is your academic specialty? What have you focused on as a a seminary professor? And uh, I was thinking he would say something like, well, I've really specialized on Jesus in the Gospels, or I focus on Paul's letters and teach classes about Paul. Um, But that's not what he said at all. He said this, I have done most of my academic work on the topic of suffering. He's a man in his 60s and has spent his entire adult life up to this point focused on the study, biblical study of suffering and then how people experience that, what God does with it in the world. I didn't really know what to say next because I wasn't expecting that answer from him, but I eventually said, is there anything that you can, I know it's hard to summarize a life's work, but is there a couple sentences you could give me that might help me follow Jesus as I encounter suffering? And without skipping a beat, he said, I don't trust anyone who has not suffered. And then he just like stopped with no explanation. Uh, So I said, "Uh, I'm going to need more. Like, what do you mean? You don't trust anyone who hasn't suffered? He just said it so directly and firmly like that. And he went on to explain to me that until we have suffered, we just really don't know ourselves. We have some knowledge of ourselves, but we don't know ourselves. And until we know ourselves, we cannot know God the way we are intended to know God. And so Mark's claim, and I think it's right, especially reading this passage, is that suffering is a very important part and discomfort is a very important part in growing as a branch on the vine. 
He also said in all of his study and experience with people, he has not found a shortcut, unfortunately. So I don't have one of those for you this morning, but he said there is no shortcut to growth. Growth will require stretching. It will require some pain and discomfort. He's a really interesting guy. I wish he lived closer. We could have him come up here and talk about it. But the really good news for us, because that's sobering news, I think, that there's going to be pain. But the really good news is that, again, this pruning is being done by a loving, meticulous farmer, not just any person. So there aren't going to be any cuts that are done that weren't really needed. There's no slip of the pruning shears ever. It's only what will result in good fruit in those of us who are being pruned. And I think that that truth has the potential to really transform the way we experience pain or agitation in our lives. When we can know that that's not necessarily that we've done something wrong. It's true, we do bring pain upon ourselves. But this pruning is something that's happening because we're bearing fruit. So instead of using so much energy just trying to avoid that, which I know I do, here comes discomfort and everything I can do to avoid it, we can actually, it's not that we love it, but we can trust that actually that's going to be for our good. That God is going to use the discomfort and whatever it is that we're going through that's challenging to grow us to greater fruitfulness. So we've talked about Jesus, the true vine. We've talked about the father, the farmer, takes care of the vine. Now I want to talk about us, the branches. The branches in this allegory are meant to bear fruit. That is the purpose of the branches. In verse 8, Jesus teaches us that bearing fruit is actually evidence. It shows that we are his disciples. And as we show that we are his disciples, his Father is glorified through that activity. But how would these disciples bear fruit if he wasn't going to be right next to them? I mean, up until that point, their ministry involved really being alongside him. He would do miracles that they would then take part in on the side, but it wasn't ministry coming through them in the way that it would have to if he wasn't going to be right next to them. So how would they be fruitful in this way, and how are we then fruitful today? That's a really important question that I want to try to answer here with what time we have left. I think one key is to see that while fruit-bearing is central to our purpose, fruit-bearing in this passage is not the command. So fruit-bearing is not the imperative that we are then supposed to go and try to do. Fruit-bearing is the result of what the primary command in this passage is. And that's of abiding in Him. Being with Jesus is the command that deserves our attention and our focus. From a variety of angles, he gets at this through these 11 verses. Look in verse 4. He says, abide in me and I in you. And then in verse 9, abide in my love. Those are the imperatives. Those are the things that he needed his disciples and wanted them to hear and wants us to hear now. Yes, you are born to bear fruit and you will only do that if you abide in me. It's a promise. So it's a command and it's a promise that we can bank on, that he is near us, that we can actually have a continual union and abiding with him as we go about life at home and life at work and life out and about, that we can be connected to him as a branch is with a vine. It's a gift to us from him a gift to be received. We don't make it happen. We don't make abiding happen. We don't manufacture abiding in Christ. 
And thankfully, abiding in Christ is not dependent upon our own strength. It's like all of his other gifts to us, like the gift of forgiveness of sins or the gift of resurrection life. It's something that we have faith and receive from him. We don't earn it. We don't manufacture it. We don't make it happen. And then our call is to remain in him, to remain where he puts us, to be with Jesus moment by moment. That's what our call is, to continue to abide. So in order to be fruitful, we need to be in him. The branches need to be in the life-giving vine. No grapes will come forth from any branch that is not in the vine. Jesus makes this point twice very clearly in this allegory. In verse 4, you can look at in your Bible, he's told them that they cannot bear fruit on their own, but only by abiding in him. And then in verse 5, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Like, apart from me, you can do some things. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So any fruit-bearing apprentice of Jesus will be completely dependent upon him for fruit. But our dependence on him does not negate our effort. As one theologian put it, it's true that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. But if we do nothing, it will also be apart from Jesus. It's interesting how that kind of works both ways. So while the availability of this abiding life is a gift to be received and it's a promise to be banked on, it's also a way of living that requires cultivation through God-dependent actions that we take in our lives. So I want to briefly now touch on a few of what, what are some of those concrete actions that I would suggest that we could take to abide more fully this year and the coming days. Because this is, it's fun to think about this stuff, at least for me it is, it's fun, but it's not meant to just be thought about, it's meant to be practiced as a way of life and a way of living. That's what he had in mind for his disciples then and for us now. So the first practical step that I would suggest is, is so simple that I miss it for a lot of years. A friend pointed it out to me a few years ago, but it's to, to see these words on the screen, abide in me and I in you, and then abide in my love, and to know that those are being spoken to you by Jesus, a person, a living person, and they're meant to be a, heard as a command and a promise that requires a response. So he says, abide in me. And then we have some sort of response to him that we actually vocalize. And I know that step sounds almost too basic and simple, but I have found as I actually respond to him, I did that once and now I do it daily. This morning when I woke up wanting to teach on this passage, I said, Jesus, I want to abide in you today. Help me to abide. So that is my daily response your response might be something like, yes, Jesus, I want to abide in you today. Help me. Or you might say something like, I want to abide in you. I have no idea how to do that. It might also be like, I think I've tried that in the past and it hasn't really seemed to work. Whatever your honest response is, I would encourage you to take it to God. Respond to Jesus with it. So then after you've done that, after you've tangibly and specifically responded to his call, then you're ready to take some concrete steps, some actions that you can build into your life. For example, for me, the most important part about abiding in Jesus is setting aside time every day that what I do is spend time with him. Everything gets turned off. You know, I have three younger kids. It's not necessarily easy to find that time, 
but I need to if I'm going to abide in him, to spend deliberate time with him. And when, I, when I'm spending time with him, I'm quiet before him, and I have his word open, and I respond to him in prayer. And the Bible reading plan that Jay mentioned that we're doing could be a great way to be a springboard towards what I'm describing here. But I want to make a key distinction. So the point of spending time with Jesus is not to read the Bible. The point of reading the Bible is to be with Jesus. And I think if we get those switched, it it turns into something that's not meant to be. The Bible is a vehicle through which we encounter God. We don't worship it. We don't get life from it. We get life from God. So as we read it, we can really connect with him if we have that order um, right. If you're like me, I'm just a curious person. I love to learn. So the Bible can become like any other book that I just want to figure out. And that's actually, I think, something that should be nurtured if that's in you. God will use that. But if we don't have that in the right order, that this is actually about connecting with Jesus, it can become something that God doesn't intend for it to be. So in addition to that, this daily set-aside time that doesn't have to be hours. It's like 10 minutes, 7 minutes. I would suggest this action as well. Building in habits daily where you just pause for like 30 seconds to a minute. These pauses are ways that we just respond to him in that moment. We just become still and become aware that he's with us, that that's true. We believe him and we tell him, I want to continue to abide in you. Help me to do that. And then we just continue on with what's happening that day. That can happen between meetings, like you're going to the next meeting of your day. It can happen in the car as you're driving, dropping people off, running errands as you sit down for lunch or dinner, I have found that that stopping, and again, it's short, it's like a minute, and just pausing to be with him has really raised my awareness of his presence in me and mine in him as I go about daily life. And the last thing is that even as I talk about some specific things that we could carry out, that I do think many of you are already doing those and I know they could bear fruit in us, I want you to know that There's only so much that doing those things on your own will will bring about in you. Um, There's only so much that taking a step from a sermon is going to bring growth into your life. What we really need, each one of us needs, is people in our lives who we can link arms with and learn from. People who are abiding in Jesus who we can say, help me to do that. And what I'm, I'm not talking about is this novice-master relationship where you have someone sitting under the tutelage of some expert because let's be honest, which one of us is an expert at doing this? Like, we're not. We're all figuring this out. What I'm talking about is friendship with a purpose that centers around sharing with each other what it's like to follow Jesus and to abide in him. So imagine you're on a walk or a run or fishing or whatever you're doing, crafting, And you say to each other, what has your experience of abiding with Jesus been like lately? How would you describe that? Or what has been really working with you to cultivate a sense of God's presence in your life right now? And those questions are not asked in a way, the tone matters a lot. They're not asked in a way to be like accusing, to put someone on the spot, to lower them down or something. They're asked in a sincerely curious way. If I ask you that, I'm asking because I want to know if there's something I can incorporate into my life that would help me. And then that question is reciprocated. So we have a friendship with a purpose where we learn from each other what God is teaching us. And the master in the relationship is Jesus. 
We sit under him as his disciples. That is what I think each one of us really needs. So what do you do if you feel like you don't have that right now? Well, again, I would say the first thing would be to tell God that you want that. Father, I want a friendship with a purpose of following you together. Provide it. If what I just described sounds way out of your comfort zone, and I totally get that if that's the case, you might start by saying, God, that sounds really uncomfortable. (laughs) Uh, Would you do your work in me and someday provide that friendship for me that I know would be good? That's what I would suggest. Just be honest with God and watch what he provides. As I have prayed that prayer over the years, people like Mark that I described earlier just end up in my life. And sometimes it's just for a season. I want to jump now to the last verse, verse 11. Jesus tells us that all of these words that he is speaking in this allegory are meant to produce fullness of joy in his disciples. As we abide in him, he promises that his joy will be in us. And this isn't a flimsy joy, a kind of joy that changes constantly depending on the circumstances that we're in. It's a more solid and firm joy. This is a joy that is a pervasive sense of well-being. Joy is a pervasive sense of well-being, and it comes from being joined to him. So it's not dependent on circumstances, that sense of well-being. It doesn't mean that we're impervious to our circumstances. Like we feel them. Jesus felt them. He wept at circumstances. But there's a deep underlying joy that is ours as we abide in him. And I think that's an amazing promise for us to savor and expect from him. This morning, we get to take communion together. It's a time where we get to actually abide tangibly in Jesus together. It's really unique. So when we eat the bread and we drink the cup together, we proclaim and remember Jesus' death on the cross. And we remember that it's through that death that we are able to then abide. His death opens the door for abiding in him, makes it possible. The bread and the cup are a visible representation, a visible proclamation of the gospel. And that proclamation is meant to nourish our souls as we feed, as we eat and take. It's meant to strengthen us. Because through the life, death, and resurrection, all who come to him in faith receive new life. They're reconciled to him. They are connected to him, transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus. It's how we can have an abiding life. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for nourishing our souls with the truth of your word and with remembrance of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus 
the light of the world who broke into darkness. Father, I do pray that for each one of us, this could be a season and a year of deeper abiding in you. Would you give us ideas? Would you bring people across our path? And would you help us to receive a life of abiding that's really beyond what we could imagine now, just like it was beyond the disciples who first heard about it? We trust that this is ours in Christ and in him alone. And we look to you now with open hands to receive that life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.